You are listening to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, and it'd be fantastic to see you behind the scenes here on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. And there, you can suggest both questions and guests for future episodes. I really would love to hear your thoughts and feedback there. But to the show today, and my word, what an incredible guest we have in store for you today, and such a hard one for me to intro in a succinct time, but I'm going to do my best. So I'm thrilled to welcome Jonah Goodhart, CEO at Moat, the SaaS analytics and intelligence company focused on transforming brand advertising online. Prior to their acquisition by Oracle for a reported $850 million, Moat raised over $67 million in VC funding from some of the very best in the business, including the likes of Insight Venture Partners, Founders Fund, Founder Collective, Mayfield, SV Angel, and more incredible names. And prior to founding Moat, Jonah was the founding investor and board member at Wright Media, which was acquired by Yahoo for a reported $680 million. And Jonah was also the founding partner of WGI Group and co-founder of Billions.org. And if that was wasn't enough, Jonah is also an incredible angel investor, including the likes of Adderall, Namely, and FitMob, all in his personal portfolio. And I'd also have to give a big hand to the wonderful Tim Chang and Rajiv Butcher at Mayfield for the intro to Jonah today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But before we move into the show today, thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, Brushfire. Brushfire is the trusted provider of online ticketing and registrations for churches and ministries worldwide. With unparalleled service and support, its tools and team help events succeed time and time again. Brushfire is the platform of choice for over 25,000 events during more than 10 million attendees and you can learn more at brushfire.com and to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments just like Brushfire did visit wepay.com forward slash sasta and they've got this incredible cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments again that's wepay.com forward slash sasta and speaking of being smart about your offering we all know that trust is a key component to the success of any business and that's where reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io is a Google-trusted third-party review platform and is the only platform in the world which collects, monitors, and publishes reviews to Google, Bing, Facebook, Amazon, and more, allowing you to see a 360-degree view of your reputation across the web with that robust API that allows you to manage your reputation automatically while achieving the industry's highest review collection. Reviews.io is perfect for any business that is looking to increase conversions, build customer trust, and increase visibility on Google. And you can head over to Reviews.io now and sign up for your free trial. And if trust is a core element of any business, so is communication. Enter Dialpad, the startup that offers teams a better path to unified communications. Build your voice with a business phone system, meetings, call center, and voice AI, connecting your team across all existing devices. And that's why over 50,000 of the world's most innovative companies choose Dialpad, from WeWork to Uber to Stripe. And whether you're a one-office company with less than 100 people, to the names listed above, Dialpad has got you covered. So put your team and communication first and head over to dialpad.com to find out more. But that's quite enough from me, so I'm now thrilled to hand over to Jonah Goodhart, CEO at Moat. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Jonah, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show, having heard so many wonderful things from Tim Chang. So thank you so much for joining me today, Jonah. Thank you, Harry, for having me here. I'm delighted to be with you. Not at all, but I want to kick off today with a little about you and how you came to make your way into the world of SaaS and really came to found Moat. Yeah, so my story actually began almost 20 years ago. I was in college uh, at Cornell University in, in Ithaca, New York. I was an undergraduate student. My brother had just graduated and had 
gone on to Yale to begin a degree program in political science and a PhD program. And we both, I think, took notice of something that was happening in the broader market. And that was companies were building internet companies. They were developing ideas out of scratch and building a tremendous amount of value. And we looked at this as two children of teachers, of folks that had gotten us exposed to the educational system, to the university system at a very young age. And we thought, wow, this is very different and very exciting. And so as a junior in college, my brother had traveled back to Ithaca to spend some time there over a spring break. And almost haphazardly, we started our first business. It was really exciting. We initially just started building an email list where we were helping folks find great deals online. So finding out how do you get free stuff on the internet, which seemed to be all the craze at the time. And what started out as just a fun project that my brother and I were passionate about quickly turned into a business where we were helping e-commerce companies acquire customers using this great new medium of digital advertising. And so this is now 1999 at the time. The bubble hasn't burst yet at this point. Folks are going crazy. Stock prices are going crazy. And we're thinking, my God, we got to be a part of this. And so we literally used credit card debt in the beginning to build our first business. It was a company called Colonize, and we were off and running. Now, little did we know, and this is important to us eventually founding Moat years later, was that we were about to run our business straight off of a cliff. And so 2000 and 2001 were right around the corner. The bubble was about to burst. The broader economic environment was about to change drastically. And one of the things we learned in our first business, which was quite successful from a financial standpoint, but we never raised money. We never had institutional backers. We never had institutional advisors. And what we had never done was actually build enterprise value. So we had built a business that was great while the market was great. But when the market changed, our business changed dramatically. And it was one of the first lessons that I think both my brother Noah and I took with us, which was you need to build enterprise value. In other words, something that's sticky, something that can withstand the ebb and flow of a market, even one as crazy as the 2000 and 2001 challenges. And so our business pretty much fell off of a cliff. Revenue was in the tens of millions of dollars and all of a sudden dropped something like 60, 70% over the course of the next 12 months or so. And we were faced with a pretty fundamental challenge, which is how do you continue to run this business? We were fortunate in that we found our way through it and we found our way to a place where we were able to survive as a company for a couple of more years, but we had never really got back to the place that we had been at. Part two, though, is where things got really interesting. So I got a phone call from someone who had been selling us advertising for a number of years. And this guy, Michael Walrath was his name, was a salesperson at DoubleClick. And this is way before Google bought DoubleClick. And actually, DoubleClick back in the day was a company that was both selling advertising and was also serving advertising technology. And so they had sort of these two functions. And DoubleClick made a decision. It was a public company in New York City. It was what Silicon Alley, not Silicon Valley, but Silicon Alley was really named after was this company DoubleClick at the height of the internet boom. So anyhow, DoubleClick decides as the market begins to change that they're going to change with it and they're going to split the company apart. They decide that they're going to spin off their ad network and they're going to keep their technology business. Well, this guy, Mike Walrath, who had cold called me to start doing business a couple of years before, decided to call me again in 2002. And he said, look, DoubleClick is spinning off into two companies. I'm supposed to go with the, the media arm, but I don't want to. It doesn't feel the same anymore. It's not as exciting as it once was. And I think now is the opportunity to start something new. And he said, you know, you and, and your brother and I have been talking about the opportunity that exists 
exists in digital media and the, how the world is changing in terms of how people can communicate digitally and how you can reach your customers digitally. And he said, I think now's the time to try to build a business to take advantage of that. And so, of course, Noah and I had been coming off of our experience with Colonize, had been a little bit in a challenged place, had been really excited, but then challenged by the market and what we were sort of dealing with with Colonize. And here comes this guy who says, I'm going to start something new right now at a, at a time that seemed like the market had collapsed. And we thought, well, it seems interesting. It seems like an interesting time maybe to bet on somebody. Maybe it's an interesting time to start a business when, when other folks aren't paying attention to it or aren't focused on it. And so we decided to make a bet. And this was really the start of the second endeavor that we had, which was backing Mike as he began to build this company, Right Media. And so we partnered with him. We helped him create the company. We became his first client. We funded it. And he was off and running with this new company. This company, Right Media, would become really the largest scaled advertising exchange, which is a programmatic platform for trading advertising inventory. It would eventually really birth what now is called programmatic advertising. And it would eventually get acquired by Yahoo in 2007 for a pretty amazing number at the time, $850 million. And now a couple of years later, Noah and I were on the board. We were still actively involved in the company, although not operating it. The company sells to Yahoo. Mike goes to work at Yahoo. And Noah and I begin talking about round three. And round three was creating. I'll pause there for a moment, though, before I, I jump into Mo. No, I, I mean, I'm thrilled that you took the phone call in the first place from Mike when he was ready to leave. But I do have to ask that. There's so many learnings you mentioned from the crash to, to backing Mike. I've got to ask, because I had Joe at Joy Mode on the show, and he said that serial entrepreneurship as a title is maybe overrated. I'm intrigued. For you as a serial entrepreneur, you mentioned there kind of the three chapters. How do you respond and feel about the title? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say it's interesting that where you identify yourself. I think when Right Media got acquired, I spent the next two years, from 2007 to 2009, not being an entrepreneur per se, being what I would call a VC. We started an angel fund. Right Media, at some level, was our first angel investment. But Noah and Mike and I decided to form WGI, Walrath Goodhart Investments, for lack of any creativity. Uh, and we decided to, to begin doing angel investing. And it was one of the things that I sort of went through personally, which was I met with tons of entrepreneurs, had a heck of a lot of fun, continue to do angel investing today, by the way, we can talk about that. But I learned in the process of, if you will, being a full-time VC, that I'm not one, that I'm first and foremost an entrepreneur. And I think that's something that you have to answer for yourself, which is in the end of the day, are you someone that gets antsy, that wants to create something on your own, that wants to build a company, that wants to put your blood, sweat, and tears into something? Or are you someone that, if you will, wants to put the players on the field, wants to back the right horse, wants to back the right people, and can be absolutely satisfied in seeing someone else succeed in that way. I definitely, don't get me wrong, I feel incredibly great when I see an entrepreneur that we backed, you know, someone like Howard Lerman at Yext, or John Broad at Confide, or John Steinberg at Cheddar, or Art Muldoon and Matt Greiser at Accordant Media. When I see one of these guys crush it, and we played any small part in backing them, I feel absolutely phenomenal. But it is not the same thing as when you create your own company, when it's actually yours, when it's your baby, when you really sort of dig in and you deal with all of the pain and suffering, or at least what feels at the moment as pain and suffering that you deal with as an entrepreneur with the roller coaster ride, the ups and downs, and coming out of that, you know, is this for you? Are you, in the end of the day, an entrepreneur or are you something else? And for me, if you will, playing a VC for a couple of years, I made the decision that, you know, 
what? I'm an entrepreneur first and foremost, and I love investing in others, but I need to go create. And that was really, for me, one of the reasons why I wanted to start Moat. And in 2009, we made a decision that we were going to go do it. The company really got going in 2010, and we were off and running. And speaking of kind of off and running, I mean, what a journey it was. But I do want to break the interview today into a couple of different segments. I want to start on the importance of having, as you've called it, your North Star. I then want to move to whether brand does or doesn't matter in the world of B2B today, and then finish on the all-important culture. How does that sound? It sounds great. So let's start with the North Star. For me, one of the things that I learned in building companies is that most companies don't end where they started. That's to say that if you look at any of the biggest, most successful companies, what they ended up becoming in the end of the day usually looks pretty different from what they started out as. And so one of my takeaways is that you need to have a North Star. You need to have a guiding force, something that, you know what, in the end of the day, we're trying to figure out, in the case of Moat, how to help brands tell their stories in a digital world. But that can be your North Star. That doesn't mean it's dictating what you do on a day-to-day basis. And so my lesson is you need to have a North Star, but you need to be flexible to iterate on how you ultimately get to the end point. And so you want to have this sort of high-level 50,000-foot idea. I want to reimagine the world of fill-in-the-blank, but how I do it is going to change over time. And I think that's one of my key takeaways. I think oftentimes entrepreneurs start businesses and they stay too committed to the tactical. They stay too committed to it has to happen in this one path. You know, when we started Moat, our idea was, all right, brands, true sort of Pepsi, Coke, Nike, P&G, Unilever, the brands of brands, if you will, will have to figure out how to tell their stories, how to build their brands in a digital world. That was the high level idea. But our tactical idea was we were going to build a creative marketplace. We were going to build a crowdsourced world where you could build ads, where you could literally build creative. That ended up being a really cool idea, but not the right business at all. We ended up completely changing what we were doing, but kept the North Star. We kept that vision in our head that in the end of the day, brands still have to figure out how to tell their stories in digital. But the way that we're going to get there, the path that we're going to take is not going to be building creative marketplace, which is what we thought it was in the beginning, but it's ultimately going to be building an analytics company and at that, a measurement company. And so that ended up being the path that we went down. But I think it's really critical when you're an entrepreneur that you have a vision, a macro vision that has to be a pretty big idea. It can be a pretty crazy idea. It can be something that sounds like, how is it that I'm going to make a dent in that world? But I think it gives you a way, a lens, if you will, to make decisions. It allows you the ability, the flexibility to say, you know what, if this isn't working, I'll stay committed to it to give it its fair shot. But then I'm willing to iterate. And as long as I'm not changing my North Star, as long as I'm not changing the the high level, that I'm okay in continuing to try other things because I'm trying to just push towards my North Star. And that was a critical takeaway that we had. I do have to ask that. You said about kind of the plasticity to iterate uh, in order to achieve the North Star. How do you really determine between when something's actually fundamentally not working and when it may be just a blip in the journey, so to speak? Yeah, it's a hard question. I think it's something that you ultimately have to feel as an entrepreneur. You have to make a decision deep down. Is this what the path should be? Or do I think that maybe there's another way to get there? And there's signals. So one of the things that I love about business to businesses, B2B companies versus, let's say, a B2C company, which we can talk about separately. But in B2B, the roadmap at some level is given to you by your customers. So you go out, one of the things somebody said to me early on in Moat was, go meet with a thousand people. Go meet with a thousand different folks who are going to give you different perspectives, who are going to tell you what 
what their problems are, what the things are that you can try to solve for them. And so when you do that, they tell you, hey, that would be interesting. But the problem with that is I couldn't get budget for because budget would have to come from here and I can't get access to that for that product. Or that's great. But the problem with that is for that to work, we would have to do X, Y, and Z. And so one of the things that I took away in the moat process was in B2B, your customers, your prospects are going to tell you what they'll ultimately buy. And so you want to walk into that meeting and you want to have them nodding their heads. You want to have them saying, yep, 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 got it. Yep. That's exactly the problem that we're having. Yep. You nailed it. Well, if you can do that, if you can do what you just described, then we would absolutely buy it. There's enough challenges in the world of B2B and getting budgets procured and figuring out contracts and figuring out how do you integrate and having the teams come together to actually partner that if you don't have immediate alignment on what the challenge is that you're solving and a potential solution for that, you're not going to get there. So I think that's one of the signals that helps you determine, all right, am I on the right path or not? So go back to our creative crowdsource marketplace example. So we went to prospects and we said, hey, we want to help brands figure out digital. And they said, great, we're with you. And we said, the way we're going to do it is build a crowdsource creative marketplace. And people sort of looked at us and we thought, all right, I'm not getting the nodding head yet, but maybe I'm, I'm just a head nod away from there. And they said, well, so are you going to replace my creative agency? And we said, hmm, no, I guess we're not going to replace your creative agency. And they said, okay, got it. So are you an additional cost on top of my creative agency? And we thought, I guess if we're not replacing your creative agency, then maybe you're we're somehow an additional cost. I don't know, I guess. And we had sort of gotten to a place where we went, hmm, they're not nodding their heads anymore. And somehow we don't have a very good business model. Somehow we don't we don't have anything that we've figured out here yet. Not to say that somebody can't figure out crowdsource creative, not to say that there's not a good business in there, but we couldn't get there. We couldn't find our way there. And the signals were pretty clear from the prospects that we went out and talked to. And it's, again, one of the things I love about B2B is they give you the roadmap to a degree if you listen. So I'm super interested by the head nodding and giving the roadmap there because uh, I'm a big fan of quotes. And Henry Ford said, if I'd done what the customer wanted, I would have built a faster horse. How do you think about customers leading product development versus maybe innovation and category creation to an extent? Yeah, we'll look at it. I mean, I certainly am a big believer in folks like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and some of these great visionaries that have built phenomenal products. And I absolutely believe that you want to take customer input, you want to take customer insights, and then you want to build to a vision that you have to what you think is the right product to build into the future. So it's not building to spec based on customer input. And one of the things that helps you do that is meeting with tons and tons of customers. So if you go out and meet with a thousand different people, you're not going to get one idea from those thousand different folks. You're going to get all sorts of ideas. And so as a good entrepreneur, your job is to take in that input and come away with, all right, what's the high level? What's the big issue that these folks consistently want me to try to solve? And what would a product look like that I could walk into each one of those meetings and have them head nodding that, yep, that would solve. If you could do that, I'd sign up tomorrow. And so I think there's still a piece there where as an entrepreneur, you need to attempt to see the future a little bit. You need to attempt to try to create a path that you think is going to be right. So it's not building on spec or anything of the sort. I agree. If you do that, you'll end up with a hodgepodge sort of product that doesn't work for anybody. But I think you want to take input from lots and lots of folks. And with that input, you can ultimately begin to innovate. No, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more in terms of taking the multiple inputs. In terms of kind of the North Star, often the North Star can lead to this kind of creation of external brand, uh, often debated in the B2B world. I'm really interested, before you said that brand is especially important in the world of B2B, why do you place such emphasis on brand first? 
let's start with that. Yeah. So I guess one of the things that my brother and I talked about when we started Moat was that we said, we want to build a company that has a meaning. We want to build a company that when people think of our company's name, that they associate something positive with that. And one of the reasons was we had spent a lot of time thinking about B2C companies. We had spent time thinking about the Pepsis and Coca-Colas of the world and how when you say one of those brands, it instantly has some sort of association that comes up in a consumer's head. Whatever that association is, that's called brand equity. And that's what brands spend a lot of time building. And what occurred to us was that B2B companies, for the most part, didn't do that. For the most part, B2B companies didn't seem to go out and purposely build brands. What they did is they built a matrix and they put it on their website. And they said, we checked these seven boxes and our competitors checked six of these boxes. And we saw the market building this utility-based type of company. And I think Noah and I thought, you know, it feels like B2B can be the same as B2C in the sense that you can have emotion. You can have a feeling that you have when somebody says the name of that company. So very early on in the days of Moat, we decided we want to build a brand. We want to have it have meaning behind it. And one of the things I learned through doing it was actually every company has a brand. It just doesn't always get defined on purpose. Sometimes it gets defined by what you choose not to do or by just the way you go out to market and talk to folks or the types of content you put out or the types of interactions that you have. And so it was something that as we were doing it, we thought, wow, actually every company has a brand. It's just a question of whether you specifically focus on it and whether you purposely tried to define it. And so at Moat, we wanted Moat to be almost like an apparel brand. We wanted it to have this sort of emotional feel and not be anything that was too specific. So we wanted folks to say, oh, Moat, love those guys, love those folks. They're smart, they're hardworking. The women and men that work there really get it and they really care and they are willing to do what it takes to deliver on behalf of their customers. And we thought, we really think we can create something that feels like that. And now we just got to go out and do it. And so one of the things that I would do with new team members when they joined, I would have these new team member sessions and I would explain to the the folks that would join that our brand was the essence of our company. And the, the secret was that the brand was actually the people. And so even though externally it's a logo and it's the jackets and the hats and the stuff that you might produce and the way you represent your brand publicly, but our brand at its core was actually the people who were the, the brand ambassadors, the folks who were out there telling our story, interacting with customers, responding same day on email, available 24 hours a day to help when folks needed it. And so when I ultimately understood that and could communicate that to folks, we really saw our brand flourish because it ended up being the people that we brought on to be our team that ended up carrying our brand forward. You said that you can be intentional or unintentional with brand building. If one does decide to be intentional, how do you know when's the right time to start thinking about and building your brand and moving away from kind of the stage that Paul Graham discusses, kind of building and selling in the early days? When does that brand integration thought happen? I think it's extremely early. I think it's almost on day one. I think you want to have a sense of your North Star first, I would say. You want to have a sense of, all right, at a high level, are we trying to go to Mars or are we trying to reinvent communications or are we trying to break down the barriers in the world of healthcare? What is the fundamental challenge that we're trying to solve? But immediately after you've established what you think your North Star is, I think you start thinking about, all right, what is it we want our company to feel like? Because in the end of the day, your brand is just a representation of the people that come together to build an organization, to build a company. And so when people hear our name, whatever our name is, or people hear about our company, what is it that I want them to think? What is it that I want them to instantaneously associate with us? And I think that's critical that you think about that because you end up 
making, again, just like the North Star, you make different decisions along the way that are either on brand or are not. They either follow your North Star or they don't. And I think whether it's a particular person to hire that you think is going to help push you forward or it's a particular business deal to do or it's a type of business model that you're going to pursue, all of those things are decision points. And once you've established your North Star and once you've begun to establish your brand, you're able to build those muscles of decisions to be able to decide, all right, this one is the right path versus another. Can I ask, obviously you nailed brand and you also nailed the attaining of large, large enterprises as clients in the early days of Moat. I'm intrigued. Would you say brand was the number one thing that allowed you to do so well selling into enterprise early? And what were some learnings that you have from doing that so successfully in the early days, often when many struggle? I think brand was one of the most critical components of our success. Absolutely. I think it's something that you end up getting emotional about because you're trying to build emotion around what you're doing. And I think when you go out and talk to customers and you talk to prospects, they can feel that emotion. They feel that you care, that you care about how your company is represented externally. So when a client comes in and they send you an email, for example, and it's a Saturday afternoon and they send you an email with six or seven or eight or 15 questions in it, as I got one Saturday afternoon, a couple years into it from an agency, and you spend two hours writing back a detailed, long email that goes through, answers every single question, gives examples, gives attachments, makes it easy for them to take it and help solve the issue that they were trying to solve on their side, people begin to feel how much you care about what you're building. And so I think we always, part of the brand that we were trying to build was one that was highly responsive, that paid attention to details, that was emotionally attached to the vision that we were trying to build. And so I think other people, and it's people in the end of the day that you're working with, other people respond to that. They want to be a part of a a journey. And so I think when people decided we want to be part of Moat, we want to be a Moat company, it was something that was emotional as well as utility. I think people said, yeah, we can get software analytics and we can get someone who can answer some of these questions through a lot of different ways. But when we work with Moat, it's something else. It's something that comes with this feeling of we're part of a special team. And I think that is really critical and has been really critical historically and hopefully will continue to be uh, into the future. I do have to transition though, Jonah, into my favorite of any interview being the 60 second Sasta. So Jonah's 60 second Sasta, are you strapped in and ready? Let's do it. So quality or quantity of logos in the early days? Good question. I would say quantity and quality are pretty equally important from my perspective. I think you want to build a logo machine at some level, but at the same time, if you don't have the right folks on board, in other words, if you don't have names that people recognize that mean something, it's hard to get the next group on board because people look at it and go, well, who else is working with you? And when they see it's great companies, they want to be attached to great companies. I'd say they're both pretty important. If you force me to choose one, I'd say quality. Tell me a moment in your life that served as an inflection point and maybe changed the way you think, be it the crash, be it the sale of chapter two, be it the sale of moat. What would your thoughts be? Well, so my oldest brother, Josh, started a company when he was in college at Cornell. He started a newspaper and he ended up competing with the daily newspaper from the university. And he taught me something pretty important, which was that you could actually create something from scratch or seemingly from scratch. You could start something that you had an idea with. You could turn it into a business model. You could turn it into a business 
business. He could go out there and create something. And so he had sort of paved the way, I think, in a lot of ways for my brother and I, Noah and I, to become entrepreneurs. And so that was a pretty important moment for me in our life. I think once we got into business, we had a number of moments that the crash in 2000 and 2001, where we went, okay, got it. You got to have a, a business that can withstand market troubles. Looking at Mike Walrath, when he built Right Media, he always talked about where Right Media was going, not where Right Media was. That was critical for me to understand because when I built Moat, I thought, all right, it's not about what we're doing in this moment. It's about the journey that we're on. It's about where we're trying to together get to. And so there's been a number of things throughout my business and personal life where I felt like, got it, there's a takeaway there. And I've tried to pay attention when moments arrive. How important is it for SaaS founders to be involved in the sales process? Critically important. I think that the SaaS founder is your number one seller. I think your CEO in a lot of cases, if not most cases for a SaaS company is the head of product and the head of sales initially. Now you ultimately can absolutely hire product leaders and chief product officers and chief revenue officers. And we certainly went out and hired a heck of a lot of great people that really took our business to the next level. But in the end of the day, in my opinion, a lot of the best software companies tend to have a product-focused CEO who's also great at telling the story. One of the things that I think is awesome about selling is when you do it well, it doesn't feel like you're selling. When you do it well, you're just you're talking about, look, it, here's where we're trying to go. Here's where we think the future could get really interesting for all of us. Do you want to go on that journey together with me? Uh, and I think when you do that and, it, and you hit the right chord, it doesn't really feel like selling. It feels like you're doing something together, and that's, and that's a heck of a lot of fun. When I say success in SaaS, who's the first person that comes to mind and why? I think there's a lot of folks that have built successful SaaS companies. I think of certainly Larry Ellison and Oracle. I think of Mark Benioff at Salesforce. I think of folks like Howard Lerman at Yext. I think of people that have built strong, recurring revenue, software-based companies that have begun to stand the test of time. And so I think there's a lot of companies that would come to mind. For me, what I love about SaaS is that it's predictable. It's something where you can see what your next year's revenue is going to look like and you're building, simply building on top of that. I also love the fact that there's only a handful of metrics that you need to understand in SaaS. You need to understand your churn rate. How many customers are you losing? Hopefully very few. You need to understand your growth rate. What are you growing in terms of revenue, in terms of logos, in terms of customers? If you have a solid growth rate and you have low churn, almost no matter what, you have a great business. The only third one might be gross margin and making sure that you have a decent business model. But if you control for those three, growth rate, churn, and gross margin, you're going to be successful most likely if you get a couple of other pieces in place. And so I love that about SaaS. I love that you only have to master a couple of things. And if you do those well, you can build a great company. And then final one, and this is a very, very challenging one, I have to admit. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your very first company with Noah? I think one of the things that I would say now 20 years later is that my outlook on building companies is longer than it was in the beginning. I think in the beginning, you think about what can I get done in the next day, in the next week, in the next month at most, right? A month sounds like a very long time in the beginning. After doing it for 20 years, a month is nothing. In fact, a quarter is nothing. Six months is nothing. A year is not that long of a time period. And so I think one of the things that I decided eventually was you need to have an outlook that is reasonable time period. And when you do, you make different decisions. You decide that certain things that matter a lot when you're looking at the world through the lens of days, weeks, and months matter a little bit less when you're looking at the world through the lens of years. And so that was probably one of the biggest learnings that took me some time to understand, but hopefully I'll continue to grow and 
continue to learn. And, and frankly, I love to listen to folks like you and guests that you bring on. I love to hear from others who have great experiences and to try to figure out, all right, how can I apply some of their learnings to continue to grow? Well, Jonah, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this episode. As I said, I heard so many great things from Tim Chang. So thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Harry. Well, as you can tell from my overexcited tone, I was hugely excited to have Jonah on the show there, and what an incredible guest. If you'd like to see more from Jonah, you can on Twitter by following him at Jonah Goodheart. Likewise, we'd love to see you behind the scenes on Instagram. You can find us at hdebbings1996 with two Bs. There you can suggest questions and guests for future episodes. That really would be great. But before we leave you today, do not forget to check out the awesome SaaS player introduced by our friends at WePay. So they are Brushfire. Brushfire is the trusted provider of online ticketing and registrations for church and ministries worldwide with an unparalleled service and support its tools and team help events succeed time and time again and Brushfire is the platform of choice for over 25,000 events drawing more than 10 million attendees and you can learn more at brushfire.com and to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments just like Brushfire did visit wepay.com forward slash sasta and wepay's got this really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments again that's wepay.com forward slash sasta and speaking of being smart about your offering we all know that trust is a key component to the success of any business. And that's where Reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io is a Google-trusted third-party review platform and is the only platform in the world which collects, monitors, and publishes reviews to Google, Bing, Facebook, Amazon, and more, allowing you to see a 360-degree view of your reputation across the web with their robust API that allows you to manage your reputation automatically while achieving the industry's highest review collection. Reviews.io is perfect for any business that is looking to increase conversions, build customer trust and increase visibility on Google and you can head over to reviews.io now and sign up for your free trial and if trust is a core element of any business so is communication and to Dialpad the startup that offers teams a better path to unified communications build your voice with a business phone system meetings call center and voice AI connecting your team across all existing devices and that's why over 50,000 of the world's most innovative companies choose Dialpad from WeWork to Uber to Stripe and whether you're a one office company with less than 100 people to the names listed above dialpad has got you covered so put your team and communication first and head over to dialpad.com to find out more as always i so appreciate all your support and i cannot wait to bring you an incredible episode with tom bogan ceo at adaptive insight on how they scale to 100 million dollars